Amen, and good morning to you. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 16. We're going to pick up right where we left off back in November in the book of Acts. Uh, Once again, that's Acts 16. We'll be reading from verses uh, 11 through 15 with our time together. Uh, For those of you who may not know me, my name is Mike Kazarowski, and I have the honor of uh, serving you as the lead pastor here at FAC. Uh, If we have not had the opportunity to meet yet, I would love the chance to uh, meet you. Uh, So feel free after service to just come up and introduce yourself, make yourself known. That would help me uh, to know who you are and know a little bit about your story. And so I'd love love for you to take up that opportunity. Um, I've been absent from the pulpit the last couple of weeks, uh, which gave me the opportunity to recoup a little bit mentally from all that 2020 uh, brought us. I enjoyed the time away to rest and reflect, but it is good back to be with the church family um, once more. I hope uh, and trust that your holidays were as restful as mine were. Um, for the last five Sundays, we've actually took a, we took a break from the book of Acts, but this morning I'd like to pick it up again. Um, we began this journey through the book of Acts almost a year ago to the day. And um, given that it was so long ago, I do want to take uh, a few minutes to remind you why we're going through this book uh, to begin with, especially because the world has changed since we started this book, uh, but our mission has not, right? And our destination has not. We've had a destination from the very beginning, and we're still headed toward that destination. It's not as if we decided to set out in the book of Acts just randomly with no direction in mind. No, we, we've had a destination in mind. And so a few reminders uh, for you as we come into the new year. Um, a year ago, I explained how the book of Acts is essentially a blueprint. It's a, it's a map for how a uh, separated group of people that we call the church uh, pursue a lost world, pursue a world that doesn't believe in Jesus. Right, if you are a believer here this morning and you've, you've, uh, in your lifetime have committed to following Jesus, you believe in Jesus, you have trusted in Him for salvation, you are separated from the rest of the world. You are different. God has separated you out. Uh, but we still live in the world and we still live in the culture. And so how does a separated group of people pursue those people uh, who don't believe in Jesus for the cause of Jesus? This is what the book of Acts shows us. It's a roadmap for how we do this. Uh, it's a missional book about the message of Jesus going out to the nations. And we can participate in this book in a sense because the message of God, the message of Jesus is still going out to the nations. And so we can relate. I explained a year ago how Jesus um, gave his followers a commission. We know this is the great commission. He He charged us as believers to go and make disciples and to baptize them and to teach them everything that Jesus had taught us. And what's important to note is that that commission is not a calling for a select few, but is actually a mandate for all believers. If you are a believer once more in this room, you are on mission. You have a job to do. You are called. And so I want all of us to become missionaries in our own right, right? Now, maybe not necessarily uh, missionaries overseas, but missionaries in the very place that God has set you for such a time as this. Once more, if you are a believer, you are under obligation 
to live a missional life, to, to leverage your life in such a way that advances the gospel, that expands God's kingdom. And if you are under obligation to do this as a believer, then we as a church body are actually under obligation to equip you to do this and then to send you out fully resourced into your week. And so I want you to know um, that behind the scenes right now here at FAC, we, we are actually, the leadership is laying the foundation for this. We are laying the groundwork for a missional ministry. For, for, for a church that raises up believers, equips them, trains them, and then sends, sends them out. That, that is our heart's desire and what's happening behind the scenes. And by way of update, I'll give you some progress of what we're, what we're doing and what we intend to do by the end of the year. Um, this past year in 2020, our elders actually began meeting twice a month. It, it was our pattern um, to this point to only meet once a month to discuss business, but uh, they, they have committed to gather for an extra meeting for the sole purpose of laying down the foundation for what God has in store here uh, for FAC in the many years to come. Um, during that extra meeting, we spend a very significant amount of time in prayer. We pray for you guys, many of you by name. If you submit a prayer request, our elders pray for you by name. But, but we don't stop there. We also pray for the future of FAC as a body, as a whole, saying, Lord, what kind of direction would you have us uh, go? Can you guide our steps? Can you give us a mission? Can you give us vision? Why have you planted us right here, right now? Father, give us answers. Would your Holy Spirit guide us? Uh, we, are, we are spending a good chunk of that meeting in prayer. And then also during that time, we've been working through a book together. Uh, by J.D. Greer. Uh, it's called Gaining uh, by Losing. And um, we, we hope that this book will aid us in our discussion about the future. Um, ultimately, as we move into 2021, priority number one among our elders and myself as the lead pastor is actually to develop a new mission statement for our church by the end of the year, one which aligns with our heart's desire to become a missional church, a church that raises believers up and then sends them out in Jesus's name. Um, and then from there, Everything else that we do here, our, 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 how our staff is structured, our programs, our events, our services, everything within these four walls that happens should flow through that mission statement, should point back to that mission statement and really be evaluated against that foundation. We do a lot of good things here, uh, but we shouldn't be content with just good things. We need to, to strive for purposeful things effective uh, events and programs. And we're going to use the mission statement uh, to direct our steps in that regard, trusting that the spirit is guiding us. Uh, I know you sit here and think, well, how long does it take to come up with a sentence that's going to define what ministry is going to look like? Are you, you, you kidding me? It's going to take months. Well, this is a critical process that will define what ministry will look like for years to come. And so it's critical that we don't rush through this process. Let me share a story of why this is so important. Um, back when Sarah and I bought our first home, we decided to do a new bill that just worked in our circumstance. And every couple of days, we would visit the construction site to see the progress. 
And I remember the first time that we went after they broke ground, I have never been so excited to see a hole in the ground as I was that day. And it was an expensive hole at that. And after that, for several weeks, every time we went, though, there didn't really seem to be much progress. It was taking forever. (laughs) And we were getting impatient. It looked like they were just kind of sitting on their hands every couple days that we would visit. But what they were doing was laying the foundation. It took them about a month to lay the foundation. But once the foundation was laid, the framing of the house, I kid you not, went up in about three days which is just wild to think about and remarkable because it's the framing of the house. It's the rest of the house that you live in. This is where the majority of your life and activity take place. And so if I could bring the analogy full circle in the life of FAC, the events and the programs and the services live in the house in the framing of the house, but we need to lay a proper foundation first. If we intend to be effective and our pursuits. And so my hope this year is that if we are diligent and uh, can avoid any other further pandemics, um, that we will actually finish the book of Acts probably sometime around late August or early September. Um, And then that last Sunday that we're in Acts, we will reveal a new mission statement that will serve as the foundation for how we do ministry here. Uh, And so our elders are discussing, they're studying, they're praying. There's going to be a lot of talk this year about it. And I would invite you to join us in that conversation and uh, uh, specifically your prayers. If we as a church body, a family are doing this, um, I, I do not discredit the value that you bring as members and congregants and regular attenders in your prayers for FAC in the future. Um, I really would covet your prayers over the next several months as we uh, charge into the future. There's a lot here that uh, we can look forward to, and we're excited to update you as we go. So with the rest of our time here this morning, I'd like to dig into God's word. Uh, Let's pick up in Acts chapter 16. Once again, I'll read from verses 11 to 15, and then I'll pray, and then we'll begin as we examine the text. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her whole household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that as we charge into the future as a church body, you have already gone before us. Would your spirit please guide us in our time together now as we look to your word for direction and wisdom. And please, Father, by the power of your spirit, would you mold us to look and to think and to be more like your son, Jesus. In your son's almighty name we pray. 
Amen. We last left Paul and Silas and Luke in the city of Troas, where if you recall, they were waiting direction from God. Right? They, they, they uh, just bounced around Asia Minor like a pinball in, in a pinball machine as God kept giving them detours on their trip. They kept trying to go into regions and God kept them out of those cities for whatever reason. And they were going back and forth and up and down. And then they get to Troas and they just say, well, I don't know what's next. We got nowhere else to go. And so we're just going to sit tight here in Troas and wait for God to give us some clear direction. And that he did uh, when In Troas, Paul received a vision from a a man who was from Macedonia, urging Paul and his team to come to Macedonia. Well, Paul um, convened with his group, with his team, and they determined that this vision was God's way of telling them that they needed to go share the gospel in the region of Macedonia. Uh, They needed to preach the gospel there. So the first two verses of our passage that we just read a moment ago Um, really serve as a bridge. Luke is explaining in detail how they traveled uh, about from Troas and how they got to the city of Philippi. You'll you'll notice that Luke is writing in great detail now uh, about where they went and how long they stayed because Luke is now traveling with them. Um, To help us understand the geography of all of this, I've got an updated map for you. I've shown this to you in the past, but this is where they are. If you look at that uh, northwest corner there is Troas on the coast. They sailed to Samothrace, which is actually kind of served as a stopover point. It's it's an island in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, uh, and they just spent the night there. And then they sailed to the port city of Neapolis, And then from Neapolis, they traveled inland to the city of Philippi, about 125 miles overall, their their total journey from Troas to Philippi. Um, There's no detail listed here in these first couple of verses of any kind of formal ministry done in those first two cities, because really Philippi is their main destination. This, This is where they wanted to spend the bulk of their time in Macedonia, at least for the time being. And it's most likely... Because as Luke mentions, Philippi is, as he writes, a leading city in Macedonia. It wasn't the capital of Macedonia. It actually wasn't even the uh, largest city in Macedonia. But it is a very prominent, leading, important city in Macedonia. It it was a wealthy area uh, that was rich with natural resources And because it was rich with natural resources, it was located strategically on this trade route that ran from east to west in Macedonia. And so in Paul's mind, he's saying, I want to go to that city because there are plenty of ministry opportunities there. They won't run dry. Um, Luke also intentionally mentions that Philippi is a Roman colony. This is an odd thing because this is the first and only time that Luke mentions a city they visited as a Roman colony. And it's odd also because they've visited and will visit several Roman colonies, but it's only Philippi that he decides he's going to mention is a Roman colony. And so why does Luke do this? I think what he's doing is actually preparing us for the rest of chapter 16. You see, because Philippi is a Roman colony, it's heavily influenced by Rome, uh, and, and its culture is influenced by Rome. And throughout the rest of the chapter, we will see this missionary team clash 
with Roman culture. Now we'll get into this more uh, next week, uh, Lord willing, but ultimately what we need to understand is that the message of Jesus will be at odds with the culture in which it is preached. The message of Jesus will be at odds with the culture in which it is preached. Despite such opposition, however, uh, we do see fruit in these passages um, in the form of three individuals. And over the course of the next three weeks, Luke will highlight these three people with three significantly different backgrounds. We get the feel that the gospel is for all kinds of people from all different kinds of backgrounds, no matter what. There's no doubt that there's other people that were converted but Luke focuses on these examples. Um, This morning, we're going to take a prominent look uh, at a businesswoman. Next week, we come across a demon-possessed slave girl. That'll be fun. Don't want to miss that one. Um, And then in two weeks, we'll see them interact with a a Roman jailer. These are the three that we'll meet in Philippi. And today, uh, we come across this uh, businesswoman. As Paul and company uh, would travel from city to city, we've mentioned this in the past, it was typically their pattern to first visit a synagogue in the area. Uh, But as they come to Philippi, we find that this actually isn't the case. They don't go to a synagogue. Where do they go? They go to a river. They go to a riverside outside of the city in hopes that there are Jewish people praying. What's the reason for this? Well, The reason they don't go into the synagogue is because there's a chance that a synagogue doesn't even exist in the city. You see, in order for an official organized synagogue to be formed, uh, there needed to be at least 10 Jewish men present. And given the small community uh, of Jews in Philippi, they, they might not even have had enough men which is why when they go to the riverside, there is no talk of other men. It's just a group of women. And Paul understands that if there's not a synagogue, the next best place is to go to to the riverside on the Sabbath because it would actually allow any Jewish population, no matter how small, it would allow them to fulfill certain purity requirements according to their law. And so once more, they come to this river. They stumble across a a group of women and presumably we get the idea, we can read between the lines that they share the gospel with them. And one of the women sitting there hearing this message of Jesus was named Lydia. Now from the text, there are two main things that we know about her. First, we, we are told that she is a seller of purple goods. Or in other words, she sold cloth, she sold clothes that were the color purple. She's in the textile industry. Thyatira, where Lydia comes from originally, is actually known for this industry, specifically their ability to make purple clothes. And this may not seem like a significant detail to us now, But in that culture, in those days, purple cloth was much more of a luxury item because of how expensive it was to produce. And so typically, it was only for the wealthy or for the royalty. Now with this, it's it's hard to determine um, what Lydia's social status is, but it's safe to assume 
that she brushed shoulders with some pretty significant people, some important figures of that time. There is a certain degree of, of wealth and independence on her own part, certainly. It's the first thing that we know about Lydia. The second thing that we know uh, is from the text is that she is a worshiper of God. She is a worshiper of God. When someone is described as a worshiper of God in this context, uh, it, it often describes somebody who is not Jewish. Otherwise, they would say that they were Jewish. It's someone who is not Jewish, but worships Israel's God. Oftentimes, it was someone who used to be what we would call a polytheist, the worshiper of many gods, and then they adopted monotheism, right? They changed their views. They, they, they worship, uh, it's the worship of one God. And in this case, it's the God, uh, that, that God is Yahweh, the God of Israel. These worshipers of God would, would oftentimes attend the synagogue on the Sabbath day, even though they weren't Jewish. And um, sometimes they would keep the law, maybe not entirely, but they would at least still worship together with other Jewish people on the Sabbath day. And so here's Lydia meeting with other women on the Sabbath day so that they could worship God together. Oh, once again, there may not be a synagogue to attend, so this is the next best thing. One could say that Lydia is pious, meaning that she is religious, that she is devout. She, she values religion. She could tell you, yes, I am a spiritual person. Those are the, the, the two things. And from those two things, we kind of have this portrait that Luke paints of Lydia. This is what the portrait looks like. We have this potentially wealthy, prominent businesswoman who has made a name for herself. It's, it's significant that she's even named because writers in the first century wouldn't even include women by name unless they were notable or notorious. There's no mention of a husband here. There doesn't need to be a husband because she seems to, to do so well on her own. She may be a widow. We don't know. Regardless, in a society and culture where women heavily relied on men, Lydia seems to be doing all right. From Lydia's perspective, she says, I don't need a man. I'm doing just fine by myself. And added to this portrait beyond that is that Lydia deeply cares about religion. It's a priority of hers. This is demonstrated by the fact that there's no synagogue, yet she kind of goes out of our way. She goes out of her way to, to go worship God with these other women by the riverside. In our context, that would be like if you moved to a remote area of the United States and there wasn't a single official established church within a hundred miles and you decide, well, I'm just going to meet with other believers in my house anyway. We're still going to worship God and we're still going to pray and we're still going to do all the things that you would do in, official, in an official church. Even though there isn't a synagogue at this point in Philippi, Lydia gathers with other people to worship, which demonstrates her piety. Lydia is a picture of like the ideal woman, especially in a culture like ours. You hear, you hear a lot of talk, good talk uh, about independent women. And, and Lydia is there. She's like the ideal woman. And you look at this portrait of her and from our standpoint, we take a step back. We look at the picture and say, well, she's in pretty good shape. 
she's, she's got her life together by our standard. She's a successful businesswoman. She may be wealthy. She has connections with very important people. She's sociable. And above all that, she's also religious. How many times, though, in our own culture, is our success or our wealth or our independence or even our piety a deterrent from the need for a savior? Sit there and say, well, I don't need a savior because I'm super successful. <laughs> I've got everything I could ask for. I don't need a savior. I've got all the wealth. I, I can just buy my, my answers, right? If I have problems, I'll buy my way out. I don't need a savior because I'm independent. I can, I can do this on my own. I don't need to depend on anybody else. Or I don't need a savior because I'm religious. Oh, I'm a spiritual person. I don't need a savior because I follow all the rules and I do all the right things and I go to church this many times and I pray this many times and, and I'm just a good religious person. I've taken care of my own salvation. This is often what we tell ourselves. But perhaps not that directly, but certainly in the subconscious of our minds, this is what we tell ourselves. And so we can look at this portrait of Lydia and say, well, geez, it seems like she's got her act together. But the reality is, and what she ends up coming to, to know is that she has a dark heart, that she is a sinner. Paul later on writes in Romans that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And if all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that includes people like Lydia. That includes people in this very room that from our perspective have their life together. At the end of the day, Lydia is a sinner. And she needs a savior. She has a dark heart that needs to be transformed and opened. And this is what's highlighted at the end of verse 14. According to verse 14, it wasn't Paul's words that transformed her and changed her. No, it was the supernatural intervention of God that opened her heart to hear and receive and respond to the gospel to hear that Jesus had died for her sins and now Jesus lives. I love this verse, the end of verse 14, because it teaches us what true conversion looks like. True conversion occurs not when you merely change your behavior. No, true conversion happens when God transforms your heart. Biblical Christianity is not behavior modification. It's not, I just need to be better. Our good works are not a means. They're actually an end. You see, our good works don't produce salvation in us. 
our salvation produces the good works. We do the good works because we are saved, not because we want to be saved. And this is extremely important, specifically in this time of the year. Because think about it like this. How many of you made New Year's resolutions in order to better yourself? How many self-help books are on your to-read list for this year? Don't get me wrong. I don't want to discredit goals or, or, or improving yourself. I have some personal and professional goals for myself this year. But at the end of the day, your, your goals and your resolutions and your efforts to better yourself will not bring you peace. They will not bring you ultimate satisfaction because your self-improvement is powerless to save you. It's powerless to transform your heart. Only a touch from the Holy Spirit will do that. And this is the message that our culture is bombarding us with. This is such a pervasive issue in our culture. The message in our society is, well, just try harder. Next time, just do better. Just muster up enough strength, for, reach down deep and muster up something. And then, then you'll do it by your own power. Then you'll prevail. Then you'll change. Then you'll find redemption. Then you'll be improved. Then you'll be the best version of yourself. This is what society tells us. And I know this because I experienced this firsthand this past week. Um, my, my oldest daughter, Ella, and I, we've been watching through an old show. It was on not too long ago, actually. It's called Once Upon a Time. Um, and the show is a fantasy adventure drama that tells the story of fairy tale characters that have been ripped from their fantasy world and they've been placed into our own real world. And uh, two of the main characters, obviously, are, are Snow White and Prince Charming, who you'll be familiar with, right? They're the heroes of the, of the show. And uh, this past week, we were watching an episode where it was revealed that Snow White and Prince Charming had done something just absolutely awful in their past. And they were just stricken with this huge amount of guilt over what they had done. And then in what's supposed to be this really powerful moment in the show, Snow White asks her Prince Charming, do you, this is what she says, do you really think that redemption is possible? I'm, I'm, so, I'm so guilty and I feel so bad and my heart is stained and it's dark. Do, Charming, do you really think that redemption is possible? And this is what Charming says. He replies, yes. I have to believe that we can earn forgiveness. But to get there, we have to be the best people we can. We have to work to spread hope and faith every day because otherwise what we did will stain us forever. And as long as we have each other, we can be the best version of ourselves. What a bunch of hot garbage. In that moment, I paused the show and I turned to my daughter and I said, Ella, they are right. 
that their hearts are stained and that their hearts are dark. And you know what, Allah? My heart is dark. And your heart is dark and stained. And that is the best version of ourselves. We're, we're sinful. And you know what, Allah? The solution does not come from anything that we can do to fix it. But there's hope. The solution comes from what Jesus did to fix it. And Allah, it is. Yeah. And Allah, God is the one who opens up the heart to this truth. Lydia was blind to the truth until God stepped in and opened her heart to listen to Paul's words. And when we understand this, and we understand the complete role of God in this uh, work of conversion, as a practical point for us who are believers in this room, it is absolutely liberating to tell people about Jesus, knowing that ultimately it's the work of God in their heart that saves them, not us. Notice in this verse that it's, it's Paul who is being faithful to proclaiming the name of Jesus, but it's God working behind the scenes so that Lydia would be receptive to it. Sometimes when we tell people about Jesus, we get caught in that mindset that if I could just have the perfect arguments and I could have, if I could just have the best defense and if I could just craft the right words, if I could articulate the message well, then people will come to know Jesus. We treat evangelism like a sales pitch, but the gospel isn't a sales pitch. We think if I could just persuade them the right way. The problem with this mentality is that it completely removes the work of the Spirit and we rely much too heavily on our own efforts. Yes, we need to be obedient in sharing this message. Yes, we need to be able to give a defense. Otherwise, people won't come to Christ. That's Romans 10, 14. You want to guarantee that someone doesn't, know, doesn't come to Christ? Don't share the gospel with them. Paul writes this in Romans 10, 14. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And so, yes, we should, we should be like Paul. We should preach. We have a responsibility to preach. We have a responsibility uh, to, to, to tell people about Jesus. But ultimately, the conversion experience is brought about by the Spirit. God opens the hearts. And he opens hearts by his word, and he uses us as the channel by which his word is delivered. Once we come to fully understand that God saves, but he uses us in the process, it helps us as believers to avoid two pitfalls, two very tragic pitfalls. One, it helps us avoid the lethargic attitude towards evangelism. Right? When we know that God uses us as the channel, it helps us avoid the attitude of laziness and apathy towards the mission. But it also helps us avoid another pitfall on the other side of the coin. It frees us from the absolute crippling burden that we are somehow responsible for someone's eternity. And so here is a practical step for us this week as we close our time together. Go in obedience. Share the message of Jesus. And then leave the results to God.
leave the results to the Holy Spirit. We can have the most airtight arguments and there will still be some people who do not come to faith in Christ. And if that's the case, then we can rest in God's sovereignty that the Spirit did not open their hearts to see. If people do not, do not come to faith because the Holy Spirit has not opened their hearts, that's okay. We can live with that. However, if people are not coming to faith because of my negligence in sharing the gospel, we have a completely different issue at hand. Preach Jesus and then let him open hearts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for all that you have done for us and through us to to be like Jesus. And you have equipped us, Father, with the Holy Spirit uh, so that we can go forth in boldness and, and tell people about Jesus, Lord. We do very much live in a culture um, that we come at odds with many times, Father, but I would ask that you would give us the the gentleness and the graciousness, but also the, the boldness and the urgency to tell people about Jesus. We are thankful, Father, for all that you have done for us, and we praise and glorify your name in heaven. In your holy name I pray. Amen.